Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector, investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. And uh, this is uh, we're recording this on uh, Monday, January 25th. Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge uh, the passing of a great American sports legend last week, uh, Hank Aaron, who was not only one of the great uh, baseball players of all time, but uh, you know helped to uh, was played a key role in the integration of baseball in in in, in the South uh, when he played in the minor leagues in the Southern Atlantic League in 1953 when Major League Baseball came to the Deep South when the Braves moved to Atlanta. He was their star player and and, uh, was really important in that. And also he withstood tremendous racist vitriol when he uh, uh, began his his, uh, chase to to pass Babe Ruth for the career home run record. One bit of pop trivia that some of you may know, uh, but some listeners might not know, is that the rapper MC Hammer got his nickname because uh, in the mid seventies, he was a bat boy for the Oakland A's and people started noticing that he looked like a young Hank Aaron and uh, who was also known as hammering Hank Aaron. And so they started calling MC hammer, little hammer and the name stuck. So we have Hank Aaron to, to thank for that. I, you know, people can Gilbert, decide. Gilbert, I know, thing. I know who you're talking about, but do you think that most of our listeners even know who MC hammer is? Oh man, that is a really good question. What do you, th- what do you Josh, think, Josh? Is Josh, it- Josh, do you know who MC Hammer is? And, and to, to play in with the bit, I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll play. I'll play. I, mean, I'll play I had here. a pair. I had a pair of Z Cavaricis in middle school, but oh, I'm 42 years old. So that's good to know. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, it just it just. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe uh, the the Adams Family rap. One would that wouldn't would that be the one? Because I mean, can't touch this hasn't been played on, on the radio for a while. I don't think so. Anyway, um, I don't want to, to diminish Hank Aaron's importance by uh, by bringing making too much of that. But that is a little bit of little trivia. We're going to move on to some local uh, politics, and and I my sense is that this uh, probably the biggest issue or the issue that's kind of going to be hovering over our city council elections this year is the issue of police reform. Um, we've got a new round of collective bargaining that's tentatively supposed to begin on February 12th. We've also got an organization, Fix SAPD, that really wants to, they've got a, a petition drive. Uh, they want to repeal collective bargaining and also repeal a uh, state uh, statute that covers civil service um, protections for public safety employees. So, I um, mean, Josh, you've been, you've been covering this. You also, you also wrote a little bit of, uh, last week about how uh, we're, some of fixed SAPD's funding has been coming from. I mean, where where do things stand now in, in this 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 whole issue of we got co- collective bargaining happening on one track, on the other track we've got an organization that's that's saying collective bargaining isn't working. We need to find another way to to get to police reform. And and I was just sitting here thinking, man, have we even talked about police reform on on the podcast since the beginning of the month? I, I mean, just so much has happened. I don't think um, we have. So, so um, you know, earlier this month, they turned in, uh, you know, uh, Fix SAPD turned in, you know, more than uh, twenty thousand signatures to get uh, the ballot measure uh, on the ballot uh, that would repeal. Uh, police unions ability to collectively bargain, you know, the city clerk is still working through all that, you know, uh, around the same time, you know, chief McManus and, uh, the incoming leader of the police union, John Danny Diaz, uh, you know, basically appeared together, you know, kind of tried to put up sort of like a united front, 
uh, you know, the, the police chief said he wasn't opposed to collective bargaining, you know, putting him sort of, you know, in stark sort of opposition, um, you know, it's, uh, to the, uh, to, uh, you know, the ends of that, of that campaign, um, you know, and then last week, you know, we saw, you know, city councils kind of starting to lay out its priorities for collective bargaining, you know, now that, you know, like the big sort of contentious topics of, you know, how much, you know, police officers pay into their health care, for example, are are now kind of done and, and settled to, you know, in the last collective bargaining agreement, uh, you've got, uh, you know, you've got the, you know, the, uh, city negotiators planning on, you know, taking this time around to really address uh, issues of of discipline, um, issues that, you know, the police chief and, you know, city management have said, you know, stand in the way of uh, getting rid of, you know, bad officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, to finally actually get around to what you were talking about <laughs> before sure. because I was just like r- figuring out to, to wrap up all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, last week, you know, we learned that, that, uh, you know, fix SAPD is, is, is pretty well funded. They've raised mm-hmm. more than 300 K, um, you know, in the last couple of months of, of, uh, of 2020, uh, we also learned that most of that comes from uh, a nonprofit that's uh, run by the Texas Organizing Project, the Progressive mm-hmm. Grassroots Group. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they gave 250k uh, to to uh, fix SAPD, uh, and you know you can't really trace that money because the the source of the funds is the as the Texas Organizing Project's uh, education fund, which is a 501c3, which under, you know, generally does not have to disclose its, its donors. So, mm-hmm. um, so that was, that was something I wrote about last week. Um, you know, so it's, it's starting. And then at the same time, and as you wrote Gilbert, you know, you're starting to see council members come out yeah. against these, these petition drives are actually starting to take more public stances on this. Um, and, you know, last week, Councilman Manny Palayas uh, came out and said, you know, he is opposed uh, to the Fix SAPD, uh, you know, ballot amendments. Um, you know, he, what he says is that, and this this is starting to become more of a talking point, is that everything that, uh, you know, that we need to do, we can get done at the bargaining table uh, right. when that starts next month. Well, I think what's what's interesting about this all this money that that's coming into fix SAPD, I think it's important because, you know, they're trying uh, the the uh, the repeal effort when it comes to collective bargaining is that's a, that's an easier lift. That's the, they needed about twenty thousand. We don't know if they they got enough valid signatures to right. get this on the ballot, but they did apparently get more than twenty thousand signatures. The uh, the drive to repeal Chapter One Forty Three, which covers civil service protections, that's about eighty thousand, which is a lot harder. It it that's doesn't look like that's going to happen uh, for the for the May election, and people wondered if would they be able to do it at all with with this kind of funding. I think it it might might change the calculus as far as whether they they would have the resources to be able to get all those signatures, and it's really important I think because what happens is if Chapter 174, the collective bargaining uh, statute, if that if that got repealed by San Antonio, then 
uh, everything we would basically revert to whatever is in chapter 143. And when you, when you collectively bargain, you can, you can uh, create provisions that supersede whatever is in chapter 143. But if you, if you do away with collective bargaining, then we revert back to that. And I think that's, there is a, a concern, I think, among some people, even people who want to see police reform, that if we do away with collective bargaining, that it's in some ways, it's taking away the city's uh, ability to uh, to get rid of some of those provisions that are that are in Chapter One Forty Three. Josh, do you think that this is, that this is a, a hard line being taken by the activists as a somewhat of a negotiating tactic because they they actually do believe that they could maybe uh, pressure the union to make some concessions at the table. You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't get the sense that that's what their aim is at all. I think they're sincere about getting rid of uh, collective bargaining mm-hmm. for the police union. Um, you know, I was talking to uh, Michelle Tremillo of the Texas Organizing Project. Um, and basically what she said, um, you know, and, and it can be sort of, uh, it can seem kind of, it, it appears to, to some folks, you know, that that's kind of a contradictory stance for Texas organizing project to to back something like this that's basically taking away uh, you know workers' rights to collectively bargain for for their wages, their health benefits, and all that. Um, and you know what what Michelle Tremillo told me and what was in the story was that look like we think they should be able to collectively bargain for their wages and benefits, but like no like we have a bunch of people on our side that say, look, like you shouldn't be able to collectively bargain your way out of accountability uh, for misconduct. Um, so I, I think I, I feel like that's that 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 seems to be like the best like crystallization of like, so, of what I've seen. So I don't know that it could be considered a tactic. I think it's, uh, I think it may, I think it's sincere. It could have that the activists, do, w- would the activists have any leverage over the negotiations? I guess not. Right. This is probably uh, their only way to influence the, the outcome. Correct. Um, but, but here's the thing is if theoretically, you know, and past negotiations aren't, a good indicator of this, you know, they tend to be sort of these long sort of dragged out brawls that take years. Uh, but, you know, they have new incoming leadership. So, you know, there's hope that some of that would uh, among sort of like city officials that, you know, it'll be a lot calmer this time around. But all of that is to say is that theoretically you could bang out a contract before you, if uh, you get, uh, before you go to the ballot in May and that contract would last for however long the the contract terms yeah. last for. Um, so it is. So so it, it it could be construed as a pressure tactic. I don't. I mean, sure. in some way, I think yeah. it'd have that effect. I mean, it, I I think you're right, Josh. It's, that wasn't the intent. But I think it is. It's it's putting a little more heat on the union. I think they were already just with the climate in the country on police reform. I think that 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 was already the case. It's interesting that that uh, police chief McManus seems to be uh, somewhat supportive of continuing with the collective bargaining process and trying to change things that way. I mean, I think the bigger the big issues we've been hearing about are the fact that uh, after 180 days, 180 days after an incident, the 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 police department no longer has the opportunity to uh, to to uh, discipline someone for a case. Uh, The fact that police officers have tend to have 48 hours before they have to be questioned about an incident. Um, one of the things that, that I think comes up a lot is the fact that uh, when uh, disciplinary cases go to, to mediators, the mediators, mediators have the right or the power to actually make the decision on the, um, 
on the the uh, the punishment. I think that that the chief uh, would be okay uh, with them being able to make determinations on the facts, but exactly would like to have the, the power to for the discipline, right? Exactly. And, 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 and the I, other. I, I'm sorry. Just I just want to say that, yeah. that along those lines, because this is like a third track where this is we're seeing collective bargaining, we're seeing fixed SAPD, and then we've got Barbara Gervin Hawkins, who's been working with city staff on this um, to to deal with some of these things in Chapter 143. It's to say I'm going to change it on this on this front, regardless of whatever happens with collective bargaining or anything else. So she's got a bill that would deal with the 180 day rule and say 180 days after the the police department finds out about an incident. That's how, that's when the clock starts. She also, I think, is going to address the issue of mediators, and uh, she's going to have a bill dealing with that and and uh, the limiting the power of mediators. So, this is operating on a on a lot of different levels right now. I'm sorry, Josh. What were you going to say? No, that's what I was going to go into. Um, but you know, specifically, I mean, you can sense that you know, city staff are starting to freak out a little bit about you know the possibility that 174 does pass so they're they're going they're having to you know sort of look and be like okay what's in 143 all right we don't like this we don't like that and so they're like they're already you know they're trying to figure out what their backup is yeah um well i I wanted to talk to uh, uh, brian a little bit about uh, a story they did over the weekend a really fascinating story about the tree ordinance a lot of people will remember that in 2010 we had uh basically uh, re- revised the tree ordinance in the city. And it was, it was really kind of celebrated as, as a really important step. I, I think you had a lot of uh, members of the council kind of uh, working together at, at, at a solution on that. Cause it was, it was a difficult process of putting that together. And the, you did a story over the weekend that really looked at, at, you know, uh, the, the challenge in, in, in actually implementing this thing and, and, and how people have been getting around it. I mean, what did you find in, in reporting on the story? Yeah, so the the tree ordinance that passed in 2010 was in re- reaction really to uh, a study that was done that showed that the overall tree canopy in San Antonio was gradually shrinking due to development, and so uh, they, they strengthened the tree ordinance. Um, and in, in theory, the ordinance is supposed to protect all heritage trees, which are the bigger old growth trees um, mm-hmm. that you see, and then 35 percent of of significant trees on on any property. Um, of course, developers can remove more than that, but if they do that, they have to mitigate the loss by either paying fees or planting new trees. Um, now, uh, the the 2010 revision reduced the amount of trees that developers could remove and mitigate from right. 90 to 80%. Um, however, and this is where the variances come in, there's still the opportunity for developers to request exceptions to this ordinance, to this rule, um, they have to go through either the planning commission or directly through the staff at development services at the city. And so my, my core finding in this story was that over the past two years, there have been 206 requests for variances um, and the city granted all of them. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, there's a range of, of except, you know, the, the, the circumstances, there's a range of circumstances. Like it could be, I actually went through every single one of them, all 206. And, you know, I found exceptions, you know, somebody, uh, you know, owns a residential lot. There's a, there's a, there's a tree on their lot. They want to cut it down to build a carport. Mm -hmm. That's kind of on one, one end of the spectrum. Uh, On the other end, uh, you know, hundreds of trees, 
on you know thousands of caliper inches of trees on hundreds of acres. There's a, a developer called Polte Group that's uh, developing about uh, 600 acres uh, for more than 2,000 residential lots on land that's adjacent to Government Canyon on on the I guess that's the northwest side um, in San Antonio's extraterritorial jurisdiction and. Um, and so on that side of it, you know, you, you can see a, a, a large impact of trees being removed. So it isn't, um, is, is it more a case of, of like loopholes in the law or is it just the fact that development services, when they, when these, uh, requests come to them, they're just, they're just, uh, uh accepting these, these, um, these exceptions and I mean, yeah. is, is, is it, is it, is it in, in the letter of the law or is it just the way the, uh, the city staff you know, it's, is handling it's, it? It's, it's, it appears to be both. Uh, so I opened the story with an anecdote about Roland Gutierrez is a right. state Senator. Now, um, what, what Roland got away with was not an official variance. He bought a residential lot that had a giant Oak tree in the middle of it. Um, and he wanted to cut it down without, paying any penalties. So he apparently, according to some on the record sources, I got some, uh, uh, some folks who used to work at development services. Mm -hmm. He came, he went downtown, was trying to find a way around it. Um, eventually he found out he had vested rights on the property, meaning decades ago, a previous landowner had filed a plat, which, mm -hmm. uh, kind of locked in, uh, the vested rights and he didn't have to abide by any tree ordinance. However, um, he still needed to get a tree permit to cut down the tree right. uh, in part because the tree permit is part of the process to confirm the vested rights. Um, I know we're kind of getting in the weeds here, but yeah. the upshot of that was um, he, he cut down the tree without a permit. Uh, they, he was assessed a $2,000 fine by the city. He called Michael Shannon, the director of development services and complained and Michael Shannon directed staff to waive the penalty. So that's an example. And that upset some folks inside the yeah. department. Yeah, and that, that's an example of, of an unofficial exception, um, uh, perhaps an illustration of how permeable the department is to influence by uh, developers who, who know who to call and who, who, and who to talk to. Um, uh, uh, there is this, uh, what I was referring to before, the official variance process, that is official. That, um, they, they can, if, the, if the developer justifies what uh, Michael Shannon called a hardship, mm -hmm. Uh, then they are. Then, then the the staff has the authority to decide whether or not to grant them the exception if it's a if it's if it's a legitimate hardship. And one of the other things I found though, in looking through all these documents, was often the quote unquote hardship was just uh, pretty much amounted to I I can't develop here unless I knock down yeah. all these trees because they're <laughs> in my way. Yeah. So. Oh my God, this is a, a major. Have you heard anything from uh, from the city since the striking that? No, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back and see what what folks think about it. Uh, I wanted to also ask you a, a briefly about the uh, the issue of the COVID nineteen vaccines because you had a, a story about that as well. And and I mean, it, it seems pretty clear. I mean, just I think communities across the country are struggling with the fact that the production of the of the vaccine is not keeping pace with the demand for it. But are there other issues that you found in just in terms of the administration uh, or just the the efficiency of the process that uh, 
that's also causing a problem or that could be changed to, to make this work better? That's a good question. And I, I don't think we've uncovered anything like that yet because the, the real issue is supply at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, according to the city, they, they have the capacity and the capability to double the amount of vaccinations that they administer at the Alamo Dome. They're just waiting uh, on them. Yeah. 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 They're waiting on the actual vaccine. Um, and likewise, at University Health, uh, in, a, in a week or two, they'll be able to triple more than triple the amount wow. of vaccinations they do if only they get could get the vaccine. Uh, so there seems to be a, a manufacturing issue mm-hmm. uh, bottleneck, a, a production bottleneck is seems to be the issue. Yeah. Um, before we wrap things up, uh, I want to talk a little bit about our city council races. We're uh, a little less than three weeks away from the uh, from the the deadline for for filing for for council races, and uh, we you know there, there may be some surprises ahead. I mean, we have not yet uh, seen uh, Greg Brockhouse uh, file for mayor, although I think we all know that's going to happen. But uh, but we we can kind of see the races taking shape, and and one of the ones that I'm that I've been really interested in is, is just District Two because uh, among the council incumbents, it looks like Jada Andrew Sullivan is. Got just in terms of the the volume of competition, she's got like there are eight people who file treasury reports to run in District Two against her, and um, I think what was really interesting, Josh, is just you've got uh, Jalen McKee Rodriguez, who's uh, a 25 year old uh, math teacher at Madison High School. He served on uh, Jada's staff for a short time, and and was uh, was really unhappy about uh, the experience. Left after about five and a half months, um, and he has raised for for a city council race and for given that he uh, is just got in this race a, a few weeks ago raised a, a, a quite a bit of money i mean is it, would would you say <laughs> yeah um, yeah it was it was it was it was honestly like you know council races just don't te- like first time council candidates don't tend to raise that much um you know at least in my experience you know you know jalen comes out and he he gets, you know, more than 400 donors um, and raises about, you know, little, you know, more than $17,000, you know, 17,600, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by, by virtue, you know, by contrast, you know, Jada Andrew Sullivan, uh, you know, his former boss, uh, you know, raised, you know, just about, you know, a thousand dollars during that entire period. Um, and not to mention just all of the, all the folks who have who have sort of waded into the breach that are that are you know sort of looking to take a shot at her, uh, yeah. I mean, it's she's got a real race on her hands. Um, but you know the, but um, you know the, I, I kind of ex- I did not expect that to sort of be the 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 dominant narrative of of this race so far. Um, you know, I've maybe thought that like you know. Uh, you know, like it would be a little bit more defined along lines of, you know, Jada and, and, and Farrell Clark, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it, that's, this is going to be, I think, a pretty compelling sort of narrative in District 2 having, right. you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, the discontent, you know, uh, you know, alleging basically that, uh, you know, as, as he told you, you know, you know, Jalen says that, you know, he faced basically sort of like homophobia in and mm-hmm. in that office, um, you know, that's that's a pretty that's a pretty compelling thing to run on. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it basically you're just 
it, it sounds like, you know, right now you're sort of fighting to get into that number two slot in the runoff. That's if right. you're in that race. I mean, it's an interesting, uh, it, uh race on, 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 on fuel. So you got, uh, as you mentioned, Farrell Clark, who was a big part of the black lives matter, uh, uh, protests in San Antonio last year. You got uh, Chris, Chrissy Villanueva, who's uh, mm-hmm. been on the, on the VIA board. But uh, I think Jalen, it, it's it's early, but I, I, I sense the kind of uh, energy that we, we saw maybe with Ray Saldana in, in 2011, when he kind of came out of nowhere and ran for city council, or we saw with Ana Sandoval in 2017. Every now and then a candidate will come along and uh and just seems to generate a lot of uh, a lot of energy behind them and and as you said Jalen uh, you know he's 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 in that unique position because he can talk about what he saw uh he helped to get her elected and then said while he was uh, serving as her communications director you had people on the staff trying to brief her about things she was you know he he makes it sound like there's a competence issue that she was not listening or reading what they were giving her that she uh actually initially was supportive of a migrant detention center that was being proposed on the east side and they had to try to talk her out of it and as you said the uh her chief of staff lou miller uh it's, it's been alleged by by Jalen that that he was uh really homophobic and, and verbally abusive to 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 Jalen while he was there and when Jalen brought it up to the, the council woman uh according to him he was he was moved out of the city hall office and and was basically uh uh it, it sounds like he they were almost uh, uh pushing him to to quit so i think that that situation is going to be really interesting to watch and and i think just the fact that he's been able to raise so much money so early uh, and you see like you you can see some like young artists and 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 uh, musical performers who are doing you know uh trying to raise money for him it's just it's it's an interesting thing he's got going there and i think uh that's going to be a, a, a race to watch. Yeah, it's it, something that's a that may be of note. And, you know, it's, for me, it's hard to tell, like, how much people care about these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, of that sort of 17,000 or so that, that he raised, um, you know, there's a significant like I want to say it was about I'm not good with percentages, but basically of that, you know, 8,000 or so came from San Antonio and the rest was from, you know, outside the city, outside the state. So I don't know if that's going to be sort of a, uh, you know, something. A talking point. You, for, for, yeah. yeah, a talking point or just like a mallet to hit him back with if you're one of his opponents. Um, but 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 I wonder to what degree people care about these things. Yeah. And he's, uh, he, he grew up in, in various places because he was, uh, he was a military brat and he, uh, I know you mentioned he lived in Hawaii and Kentucky and some other places. So you do yeah. see some of the money coming from, from I think, from apparently from from people who've known him for, for a long time uh, in these places where he grew up. So, but I, I, I think you're right. I think there's going to probably be the argument from the councilwoman uh, from her campaign that uh, he's being funded by people from out of the state and and don't let them decide the election for you. So, um, it's going to be one to watch. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up there. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Take care. <laughs>